Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. All right, welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. Hey, I'm really thrilled. I got two great friends on as guests today. First, James Lee. He's a co-founder and CEO of Legal Mation. He's also the founding partner of LTL Attorneys, a nationally recognized litigation boutique. He's an experienced litigator and has tried numerous cases in federal and state courts. Along with him is Thomas Sue. He's also a co-founder and the COO of Legal Mation. He brings in a unique combination of legal and business experience to the company. And most recently, he also served as the managing partner of LTL Attorneys. So, James, Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Neil. Michael, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, as visionaries, what is the story that you would like to bring to the world? Well, I mean, for us, it's uh, the whole idea of, of really um, using a computational process to mimic human behavior, human decisions, human thought, and, um, and using that computational power to really expedite a lot of the rote, mundane, tedious tasks that we do every day in life, and uh, so that we can all be enriched by doing higher level tasks. So it's really about freeing uh, the type of stuff that we can do as humans so that uh, we can do the stuff that we really enjoy as opposed to the stuff that we don't enjoy. It's very interesting to hear you, you say that because uh, you were kind enough to, to uh, be in the book, uh, Only AI Revolution, that uh, Neil and I co-wrote together. And we talked in the book about how you were able to do that for lawyers. And I think that there's a misconception out there that you know, AI is going to take all of our jobs, including legal jobs as well. But it sounds like what you're facilitating is a way for it to take the drudgery off of people, especially lawyers. And I wonder if you could talk about that, what you did for lawyers with your, your product. Yeah, so our, our first product uh, that we targeted, um, that we uh, put in production, um, has to do with the idea of taking a lawsuit and then uh, training an AI platform to read it, understand it, and then to execute those types of decisions that a lawyer would make. Um, you know, work that would take eight hours, we can do in two minutes. And you know, that's sort of a jaw-dropping sort of ratio of improvement, right? eight hours to two minutes. And um, you know, when, we, when we realized we can do that, and we, we actually showed some of our clients, um, they were wowed. And you know, that, that really just started this entire process of you know, how do we mimic human behavior, human thought, human uh, thought processes, decision-making, so that uh, we can teach a computer how to do that. that. That's really crazy when you think about it, right? That, how can we map um, the type of decisions um, that, a, that a, human being, uh, a human being makes and teach it to a computer, but you can absolutely do that. Mm -hmm. So look, a lot of people always say law, interesting area, very, very human-esque, right? Is it that your AI can actually do this work as well as a person? I mean, it seems like that's a, a major roadblock. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think you have to be realistic about what you're trying to target, right? Because, uh, you know, virtually every AI platform out there is, you know, a narrow platform. I mean, it's, it's really, trained to do a very specific set of tasks. And, you know, for us, uh, our platform is fantastic when it comes to litigation tasks, early stage litigation tasks, but you ask it to play a game of checkers and you won't, it won't be able to play that. And so it, it really depends on how you train a platform to basically, you know, confront the type of, of problems that, um, that you need it to solve. 
So when you say mimicking human behavior, um, I mean, that's a very interesting idea there. And so for someone that's the lay person that says, okay, I've heard about artificial intelligence. I know it's out there, but how is it possible that something can begin to mimic human behavior, which if you think about it, I don't know if there's anything more complex than human behavior. How do you begin to even train your models to do something like this? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple ways you can approach it. And I'll use two buckets. Um, you know, one is a supervised learning process and an unsupervised learning process. Um, a lot of what we do is a supervised learning process because um, the, the type of deep analytical um, uh, uh, thought and the permutations that are, that are available, um, you can really only use a supervised learning process to do what we do. In fact, I, I know there's a lot of... Um, the narrative out there for many years has been, oh, you can use an unsupervised learning process. Don't believe any of that. I mean, uh, you can use unsupervised learning processes for very simple true-false types of questions. And when you have many permutations, many ways that circumstances can be expressed, um, the only way that we found that really uh, overcomes that sort of barrier uh, uh, in a range of accuracy that's acceptable is a supervised learning process. So... I, I, I get all that, and it's great you're talking about the narrow intelligence, right? And it can only do what we can. But have you ever seen your, your AI engine do something that was surprising? Like I always hear about the chicken story, for example. You mean in terms of what it can extract? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen. You know, um, you know, just FYI, so that's what it's referring to. What's that? <laughs> yeah. So th oh, there was a lot of that. Lizards. Yeah, so there, there was a lawsuit that uh, we were using that was put through our system, and it had to do with a, with a guy who went to Whole Foods to buy a, uh, a rotisserie chicken, and he bit into the gizzard uh, that contained a rock, and he broke his tooth. Hmm. And when we put it through our system, uh, it, my jaw dropped when our system was able to pinpoint the key allegations about that very, about that very thing. And I was like, wow, this is, this is unbelievable that, you know, our system has been able to sort of filter out all this extraneous stuff that doesn't really matter and then focus on the stuff that really does matter. And, you know, whether you call it intelligent or not, the end result is it's relevant, it's accurate, it pinpoints what, it, uh, what people need to know so that you can then start doing the next stage of, uh, of decisions that, that a lawyer would have to use in this entire process. So, um, you know, what we've been able to do recently on our platform uh, as we're working with more integration partners with more, uh, larger companies, uh, particularly a larger uh, e-discovery company, is that um, we, we are now using our platform to do date extraction and description. And we're able to now tell you that it happened on this day or between these days um, so that it really expedites the creation of timelines, which is a big pain in the neck. <laughs> and so, um, you know, what, what we're finding out is that, you know, the, the value that we're bringing is um, – the ability to convert an analog signal to a digital one. And I think that's really key because um, the problem with um, writing, reading, is um, it's really nothing more than, than an analog signal. It, it's like listening to music on a radio. So how, how is it, can you, how you can convert that to a digital signal that many more systems can understand, that you can replicate, that uh, you can easily translate from one platform to another and do it at lightning fast speeds. And the only way we can do that is if you go through that sort of a conversion process where uh, what, we, what, what we've been doing, which is we take text, which is an analog signal, we use a variety of uh, AI machine learning techniques to basically start uh, classifying it. You know, we, we actually give it like bin numbers or, or container numbers is the way to think about it. And now, uh, you know, uh, we have it nicely structured. 
And now we're able to do all these cool things with it. Speaking of cool things, so let's go, let's go to Twilight Zone territory here for a moment. Let's start talk, talking about taking analog to digital, taking an analog signal. How can we apply this to other fields and other sectors to really imagine and use this to its full possibilities, even beyond the legal profession? How could we use this? Yeah, I mean, for us, uh, you know, be, because our background was one in law, uh, that's where we started. But the reality is you could take, you know, three steps back and ask yourself, what, what did we really accomplish by converting some analog signal to a digital one? Well, well it, it has to do with, with text and semantic understanding, right? And it, that's not, uh, law does not have a monopoly on any of that. You can imagine it being used in insurance, um, healthcare, um, uh, risk assessment. I mean, there, there's all these applications that once you understand that now what we've been able to do is really understand um, and, and do the entity extraction, the relationship extraction, the classifications and the structuring. Uh, and, and now we're able to do secondary tertiary processes related to that. Uh, it, you know, really, the, the, uh, the, you have endless possibilities on what you can do. Well, I think that that's fascinating. There seems to be a lot. I'm going to flip this question to Thomas because, James, I know you're the CEO and the visionary guy, but to operationalize this and get people to, you know, pay, pay for this, what, what's got, what, how's that work? Has it been easy, hard? What are the challenges? Well, it's obviously industry specific. So I'll start with our industry, which is the legal industry. That's a messed up industry. <laughs> <laughs> It's a challenging industry because what we found early on is that uh, when you introduce something so revolutionary, you know, first of all, you're starting off with lawyers who, uh, by, by nature, we are trained uh, in law school and otherwise to be skeptical about everything. This is why lawyers always ask questions and they, they, they you know, it could be a simple issue, but they make it very complex. Well, imagine trying to sell our solution to lawyers and say, hey, you can do things better than what you're doing currently. The initial reaction is not, this is awesome. If a machine can do it, I shouldn't have to do it. The initial reaction is actually, well, actually what I do is very bespoke. No one else can do that. I, no, thank you. So there is a lot of that. Uh, not everyone, I have to admit, it's also a generational thing as we can imagine. Um, so what we found is that you can't, you have to be careful how big of a leap you take to introduce a, a, a product to this industry in particular. Uh, one of our customers said it perfectly. Um, you don't want to give them such a big leap where they, they, they feel uncomfortable. You want to sort of put something in front of them where they can understand, relate to, take that first step, and then they can move on to the next step and next step. And what we did is with our initial product, we think we it was a big leap, but it was sufficiently we, we involved them sufficiently in the process where they felt that they realized, hey, this is actually going to augment my practice and help my practice as opposed to taking my practice away, uh, which is still far from, from happening. Uh, but again, our, our basic premise is that, hey, we're lawyers, we know your pain. If a machine can do it, you probably should not be doing it. Well, speaking of pain and, and complexity for a moment, I was recently reading Malcolm Gladwell's new book, and he was talking about how judges make their decisions. And what he was saying is something is seemingly innocuous is uh, the fact that the judge hasn't had lunch yet 
can very much affect his or her. And I see you laughing because you probably know what I'm going with this. Uh, it can affect their judgment, right? And so we are humans. We are prone to our own biases and our own errors of judgment. Um, we've been talking so far about how your technology is, is aiding lawyers, but do you see that this technology can help with the judgment process for, for judges as well? And how would that, how would that work? Yeah, I don't know if uh, James will probably chime in as well, but uh, absolutely, I think uh, I think that is very possible. But you know, there's this whole this debate about data, right? Um, how are the decisions made by a system? Uh, well, it, it has to start with some sort of data, and that's typically prior historical data that colors what the outcome is going to be on a new matter. Um, so it's a big issue actually in the courts uh, because on top of the fact that humans, judges themselves are human, by the way, they do eat and go to the bathroom, just to be clear, sure. uh, behind the big rope. They, they, they make mistakes too. And like you said, they may be cranky one day because they had some personal issue before coming into court that morning, or they didn't have lunch, or their lunch sucked. Um, so imagine if you base even decisions that they made during certain periods of their, of their career, and you take that data and you train a system to be able to learn from that, those patterns, that itself could be flawed. So there's a lot of issues and, and uh, complex issues that come up with that. Uh, the short answer is with enough, over time, I think you can certainly aid in, in, uh, um, um, in, in coming up with certain decisions and uh, rulings, but I don't think it will ever replace the judgment that's required for, for certain types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I think um, the, the way I think about it is, um, what is a right decision? And the problem is, um, particularly with law, it's such a fuzzy space that um, there are many right decisions. And and there's a whole range of right decisions. And um, depending on who that decision maker is, um, it might be, you know, one thing, another person might be something else. And to sort of mimic that behavior, I go back to the sort of notion of mimicry, um, how, how do you do that? And can you have one model? You know, I, I've said in a couple of public talks that, um, you know, the problem with AI is this notion of bias. Uh, you know, we, we hear this term all the time. And what it really boils down to is, um, you know, oftentimes when you deploy a model, you deploy one model. That one model is supposed to capture, uh, in essence, um, all the sort of collective wisdom of whatever uh, group that, you're, that, you're, uh, that you have. And, and the problem is, um, you know, we're, we're not talking math. You know, law is not two plus two equals four. It's two plus two is sometimes this or that, or it could be something else. Um, you know, one, one of the analogies I've been using, um, and, I, and I think this will make sense, is you know, if, if I develop an AI platform that is a composing assistant tool, and I use only Bach, Bach would be very happy with that tool mm-hmm. because it would mimic exactly what he would do. It would capture his chromatic scales, his uh, syncopations, all the things that, that make Bach but if I gave that to Stravinsky, he would throw it straight in the trash because the, the styles are so different. And so the idea is, is that, okay, um, now that we know that there are many, and just like, you know, you, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell, I, I, I love him as an author because he really does point this out. He talks about Prego and how, when they did that market study, they realized there is not just one best pasta sauce. There's mm-hmm. many best pasta sauces. And same thing with AI. There's not one best model. There's many best models. And I think if you want um, a wider spread adoption on uh, AI, particularly in our space, which is really what we discovered in law, because lawyers think of themselves as artists, 
uh, we had to deploy um, uh, our primary models, but secondary models that helped mimic a lot more of the decisions that they made so that they would be more readily able to accept that output. Because if you didn't do that, they would reject it. And so, um, you know, I, I think as we move forward, in fact, you know, there, there was this great talk I, I attended at, um, uh, here in Los Angeles with uh, the, uh, the Stanford Engineering uh, Program. They talked about autonomous driving. And, uh, you know, the, the, how do you program a car when uh, you, you have the option of hitting an elderly person or a younger person? Mm-hmm. And um, what would people do? And, uh, or, or I'm sorry, uh, you, you hit a group of people or you, uh, you, you uh, have a, a collision where you get hurt. And, you know, at, at, you know what, what are the probabilities of, 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 of each? And, you know, at the end of the day, if you ran one model, you would be wrong some of the time. And, uh, you know, you may want to deploy separate models that mimic more the type of decisions that a person would have when they drove. And so, you know, that, I think that's one of the larger um, issues I think we all have to confront in talking about AI is that, um, you know, especially as, as we've been doing this more and more the past three or four years, um, I, I think there's this big fallacy out there that, you know, that you can deploy one model with proper training. And, and, and what I'm seeing out there is uh, in, 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 most, mo- in most cases, that's impossible to do because you need, you need to run separate models because you have to really uh, understand um, who the decision makers are. Sure, sure. If I could build out that idea, right? Because I think you're spot on, James. And it's not just pay right or wrong binary type of thing, but like the United Nations has been really gun ho about AI robot judges, right? They they feel that it'll reduce bias and improve access to justice, reduce corruption. But if you look at our own U.S. court system, you go both you guys are litigators know that you know even the the the, the judgments and the settlements are can be wildly different at times, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like people think, well, that's okay. If we can figure out a fair answer for everybody or a fair, you know, guideline or whatever it is for everybody, this will work, right? So it sounds like, well, we can't just have one model here. Everyone still wants to try and have one, one judgment, one settlement, one ruling. And it sounds like that might not really be realistic either. Is that a, a, a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, especially with the more complicated set of circumstances, right? Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I also mentioned this in an article where, um, you know, there are some decisions you absolutely want Spock to make. If you want to know the odds of you dying in a volcano, uh, something blowing up, yeah, Spock is your guy. Um, but there are other decisions you want Captain Kirk to make because he's just better able to assimilate all the quantifiable and, and non-quantifiable factors together to make a, you know, more reasoned, uh, you know, more, uh, more human judgment. And, um, you know, the, the thing about, um, you know, these sort of uh, uh, robot judges is that, you know, I, I can see a circumstance where maybe a parking ticket, you know, just because um, the, 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 the permutations that are involved in parking violations is probably not that much, uh, not that varied. I think that might make sense. But, you know, when you talk about a murder uh, with defenses, uh, you know, with uh, history of uh, child abuse and mitigating factors that you need to consider. How do you how do you rank that? How do you you know? Is there a back propagation that you're going to do at some point to change your your, your weights and measurements on that? And uh, you know, it it gets really complicated. And at the end of the day, I think most people would prefer a human being listen to the facts and make a reasoned decision. 
Well, it's, uh, first of all, I'm glad that you, you, man, you managed to bring Captain Kirk and Spock into, into this conversation. That's already a plus. But I think what you're talking about here, even going back to the Prego example, is um, on that show, we had these two differing voices. We had McCoy, you know, who was very much the passionate, heartfelt side. And then we had Spock, the cold, logical side. And then Kirk was in the middle, bringing these two ideas or two ideologies together. But I think also what we're dealing with here is when you talk about something as complex as a murder, what Malcolm Gladwell does so well is he'll set up one thing. So you think we're going down this way, but then there's some wrinkle. There's something that we hadn't thought about that might, might change our thinking. Whereas if there's a murder, okay, you might be thinking, okay, that guy is guilty and that, that's why we need to punish him drastically. But then you step back and realize, well, wait a second, there were other factors at play. You know, he was abused, they had a past relationship. But all this is leading me to think that to something we talked about uh, with a previous guest, which is, um, AI is used as a tool to mitigate uncertainty, right? And I think, especially in times that we're living right now, we're experiencing a time in which we have one side of the culture that's very much of, of safetyism. And we saw that with COVID-19, where we've got to be practical. We don't want to lose lives. And the other side is saying, well, yes, but there are um, collateral damage that we can bring up here. And with AI, it just seems like we very much as a culture want certainty. We want to be right. We want to make the right decisions. And AI is a tool. And yet, life is so much more complex than we might ever imagine. And, and it's hard to ever get no the right answer. And I wonder what your thoughts were about this tool in, in this reality. Thomas, you want to take that? <laughs> <laughs> so I will point out that James always points to me when he doesn't want to answer because he wants the time to think through a smarter answer so he can be smarter. <laughs> this works in Fair enough. <laughs> I, I just want to throw it out there. So what I'll do is I'll make a fool out of myself and come in and rescue the day. So, um, I will say, I'll echo what James said earlier, which is in, in, in some circumstances, I think AI is perfect for the ones where you don't have a whole lot of variation and you can distill things down to numerical value that you're going to have very little um, uh, variance or you're going to have very little controversy, right? But when it comes to complex issues of the human nature, I think that's a very, very difficult situation for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, even the, the even the the sort of the, the the pain that we're going through as a country, right, on the racial issues. I mean, how do you, what what can an AI do there, right? Can I can an AI actually distill down whether something, whether an action or behavior is racist by nature, uh, or it's not, or is it just simple um, um, unintended bias behavior that is not harmful, but it's just something that uh, a person exhibits. I don't know. And those are the things that uh, I actually think make things so much more complicated. So I do think that AI has a place, but not in the wild imagination. You know, if we were to think about what AI can do eventually, um, you know, can, it, can, it, can it drive our lives, right? Can it make decisions for us on, in every facet of our lives? And this is something I've been thinking about is, you know, I, I, have, I have children. Can you have an AI system essentially guide them through the entire, their entire lives, help them make uh, a career choice, help them make a, a spousal choice, you know, right. all the different choices along the way. But if you look at, you know, the, the different, I have three kids and each one of them is very different. They all have different preferences. How do you even adjust to that? Um, so there is no one model, as James said, and I don't think there ever will be. Now James can say something really smart. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I wasn't gonna say anything. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll rescue you then, James. <laughs> I, I think we should be talking a lot about dichotomy, right? And that 
there's not a one size fits all, but I've always wondered about this because, you know, James, you made the point earlier that we want to be able to appeal or make our case to a human, right? But yet we also know that when it comes to collecting information, we'd rather talk to a machine because the machine's not going to judge us, right? We tend to give more honest answers. But is that because we have this dichotomy because of the nuances of being, you know, all the different things about being human and different scenarios, the variability, or is it that, you know, just historically, maybe instinctually, we've learned that the way to persuade people is through an emotional resonance, right? To tug on some emotional string. And if we try that with a robot judge, there's no, no emotion to, to, to tug on, right? It's like, it's going to have to be cold, hard facts. Right. That? And, and that's why I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's uh, sort of a really good point to, um, now that you, that you mentioned it, it's it sort of like the way I, I think about it is, uh, you know, my own uh, uh, transition to using uh, chatbots, for instance, or email versus, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And, um, you know, ask, you know, I can ask myself right now, when is it that I am more comfortable using a chatbot versus picking up a phone? And I'll tell you right now, it's, it's just the level of severity of the, of, of the case. If it's a simple question, when do you open? Or, hey, when is my refund coming? I'm more than happy to use a chatbot because the, the sort of the severity is really low. But if it's more urgent, I'm not going to use a chatbot. I'm going to pick up the phone or do something else where uh, you know, I do want that human interaction. I want the more instantaneous sort of feedback, right? And so, uh, you know, I, and so I go back to the idea of uh, you know, parking tickets. Yeah, I think parking tickets, okay, I, I, I can see a situation where a robot judge would work great in a parking ticket situation. But, uh, you know, for the, for, uh, the more complicated uh, cases, uh, even complicated family disputes where there's child custody issues, Man, there there is going to be a hundred different things, hundred different plates uh, a judge needs to spin. That there is no way you will find enough good data to ever train an AI system to make those types of decisions. And by the way, I'm I'm with you on the chatbots thing. Um, going back to what you said though, Tom, I think is Thomas is a really interesting idea. I, I'm been working on this book. Uh, with my, my client about the uh, power of routine. And one of the, the AI experts that we were speaking to was talking about this and he had a question which was, um, would you like to always be right? Would you like to never be wrong? And if, and if AI could help you do that. So going back to your children for a moment, I mean, I think there's a power, um, if we're looking at the, the human condition, there's a power in making mistakes, right? Uh, people think, and myself very much included, that we learn from our mistakes. We become the people we are because of not just the good things we did, but also our regrets, things that we wish that we had done better. And so I think it, it not, not that I have an answer for this, but I think it raises a really important philosophical question, which is if we did have an AI that could say, okay, do this, God, I'm, I'm help guide you this way. If it, if it was even possible based on the complexity of our world, would we want that? Because what kind of existence would that be? What kind of person would we be if we uh, weren't able to ever make mistakes again, if we had have all the answers in front of us? So uh, my answer to that is, and I've thought about that a lot, actually, uh, because I, I always talk to myself, could I, I mean, after, you know, maybe after legal mission, my next business, you know, could we develop a system where, uh, you know, you have a life counselor, a life guide is what I sort of called it. Haven't come up with a name yet, but if you guys do come up with a name, I have rights to it. So the, the, the concept, but the idea is this though, because if you distill down what, what, what you do on a daily basis, right? Uh, the decisions you make on a daily basis. There are a lot of things that I want the machine to do for me, like calculations of probabilities or chances. But the ultimate decision I do want to make 
because that's my ultimate decision. So I, I do think there is a machine and human sort of a, a collaboration that, that you can have, uh, which will enrich our lives. Um, but I agree with you, you don't want uh, AI to make all the decisions for you and all you're doing is just execute and then, then you beg the question, then what are we here for? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's a, a bit bigger existential question. Um, but generally, I do think that there's a big place to for us to not waste our time in a lot of things that we do, right? Researching or, or thinking about things uh, as opposed to making decisions more so. Mm -hmm. Well, let me kind of ask, is it the present or is it the future here then? You know, China started virtual courtrooms uh, a few years ago. And, you know, a lot of people were like, outside of China, were like, ah, you know, is that, is that really gonna work? And now because of COVID-19, we're all kind of forced to do that. But China's also about to roll out uh, AI arbitrator, that they're gonna have the AI work in these virtual courtrooms and be able to, you know, listen to 10,000 arbitration cases at the same time. What do you make of that? And do you see other countries going the same route? James? Thomas, you, you <laughs> <laughs> What did I tell you? <laughs> what did I tell you? Well, look, let, let, let me get that started. Uh, and James is going to have more of a, more of a, a response to follow. But, uh, you know, oftentimes, here, here's, here's the one thing that a lot of people miss. And, and taking arbitration and, and the courtroom and, and legal uh, as, the, uh, as the venue. You know, a lot of parties to lawsuits oftentimes, um, part of their desire is to be heard. So when you're in front of a judge, in front of an arbitrator, and I went through my own lawsuits many years ago and uh, realized that sometimes whether whatever the decision ultimately ends up being by the arbitrator or the judge, you just want to put out your case, you want to be heard, you, know, you can call it venting or whatever you want to call it, but that is a necessary human thing to do, right? And then whatever the decision is, you tend to accept it. Um, so imagine having an AI system and you know it's an AI system, I don't think you'll ever be satisfied with whatever the answer is, even if it's quantitatively the correct answer. I mean, if it's a, let's say, you know, monetary dispute or something like that, it's very clear black and white you know, contract breach. But even then, I think if you are not given the chance to express your position, your situation, your feelings and emotions surrounding the circumstances of that deal or why you breached that deal, as an example, I, I don't think you're going to get that satisfaction ever. And so you're not going to get the trust placed on the system like that. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I think he said what he said what I was going to say. <laughs> 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 but, but, you know, yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, um, if people are not going to accept um, the output the decisions and there is a mass uh, uh, protest against such adoption, um, it, it, it stops. Right. And so I think you have to really you know, take, again, you know, a few steps back and ask yourself, at, at what decision points can we use an automated process to help speed things up as opposed to just replacing the entire thing uh, lock, stock and barrel? Because, um, you know, number one, I'm, I'm very skeptical that uh, China would be able to do this in a way that it would be uh, not only scalable, but usable in such a way across a wide array of cases. Again, I, I can totally see a situation where parking tickets, yeah, uh, go, go right ahead. It, it makes perfect sense. But when the complexity gets um, uh, rises, uh, I'm telling you, there's there just so many ways that I think a set of circumstances can present itself that uh, there's no way 
you would have enough data to train a system to make the quote unquote right decision. Again, what is the right decision? Right, right. Well, this is absolutely a fascinating conversation. Um, and I feel like we could even talk for much longer about these issues. If people want to learn more and want to find out uh, their answers from you guys, how can they get in touch with you? How can they learn more about Legal Mission and what you do? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they can stop on our website and they can contact us uh, directly. Uh, James's home address is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, yeah, they can contact us on uh, email. It's a first name dot last name at legalnation.com. Either one of us. Well, wonderful. Awesome, guys. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show. Our pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.